Hello and welcome to From Misfit to Mystic. Get ready for my unfiltered, off-the-cuff, raw and real radio show that puts evolutionary leaders from all over the world into the spotlight. Leaders who have taken themselves from feeling unseen, unworthy and out of place to becoming unapologetic for who they were born to be. I'm your host, Lisa Don Lajoie, and we will be digging into the victorious impact that these powerful change makers give to the world with their purpose, how they monetize their magnificence daily, and how they confidently stepped into co-creating the life of their dreams. Now let's dig into today's episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to From Misfit to Mystic. I'm very excited about today's guest. Kimberly Berry. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. We are going to be talking about mental health issues today and her experience and story and personal dive into making change around this subject. Uh, Kimberly Berry is the founder of Being Unnormal, a coaching and advocacy group that assists people navigate the world of mental health. She is also the host of the podcast Being Unnormal, which explores issue within the health mental health community, including children's mental health issues. Kimberly's a sought after speaker and coaches individuals on subjects such as personal and professional development with an emphasis on parenting children with behavioral health special needs. She is the producer of the Adolescent Mental Health Summit, which takes place in Camas, Washington, tackling tough subjects like suicide and depression. She's absolutely a total powerhouse. And I'm really excited to introduce you to how her brilliance, honestly, absolutely incredible. Kimberly brings her over 20 years of corporate nonprofit leadership and small business experience to the table. Additionally, Kimberly also founded Project Holiday Hope, which serves low-income families in mental health crisis by providing gifts and basic needs support during the holiday season. Last year, the project was able to provide over 500 gifts to families in Clark County who would not have been able to celebrate Christmas otherwise. She's the mother of two beautiful children, one dog and two (laughs) guinea pigs. Very excited. Very excited. Kimberly, welcome to From Misfit to Mystic. Let's dig in and let's talk about this very important subject that is near and dear to my heart. Kimberly, welcome to From Misfit to Mystic. I'm extremely excited you're here on the show and I can't wait to dig into the subject matter because it's close to my heart and I'm very impressed with what you're up to in the world. So let's start there. First of all, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I'm a fan of your work and been lucky enough to be the recipient. And uh, I'm just so excited to be here to talk about mental health today. I'm very happy about it too. So I want to know, can we just run back a little bit in time and talk about how did this unfold for you? How did you create being unnormal? What happened? What happened in your life that brought you to here? Well, I mean, I think the story is long and tawdry, but the Cliff Notes (laughs) version is. um, I, you know, about nine, well, gosh, now it's about 11 years ago, I was married um, and my husband at the time had a psychotic break. And um, as a result of that, it was from untreated depression. And as a result of that, it turned into and morphed into a paranoid schizophrenia. Wow. it was a very scary and dangerous situation. 
around that time, um, my, at the time, five-year-old daughter uh, started, she was exhibiting behaviors that I knew were more intense than her peer group. And we had had conversations with some of her daycare providers about some behavioral issues we had seen in, uh, or they had seen in the classroom. But it kind of came to a feverish pitch around the same time that my ex-husband started exhibiting these, um, these really extreme behaviors um, and symptoms. My five-year-old at the time uh, had a huge explosion and uh, as a result, she wrote a suicide note and came up to me with a wow. suicide note in hand. And she had a plan. She had a drawing. She had a, a plan. And I knew at that time the situation uh, was, was desperate. And so um, cut to the chase, I ended up leaving my ex-husband mm. and, and divorcing him and taking, I had two children at the time, and taking my two girls. And really, then it became the journey of being um, the ex-wife to somebody who, you know, is, is um, very, very ill and being the mother of two children and going through their journey as their caregiver and parent as I watched their mental health spiral out of control. And of course, you know, I come with my own baggage, as right. most of us do mm -hmm. um, in this day and age, you know, with, you know, I've battled myself with depression and anxiety in the past. So I have that firsthand experience. Wow. But really being a normal was born out of going through the process of watching what my children had to go through, and especially my oldest daughter, um, as she ended up going through a major psychiatric crisis um, and really... Uh, losing a lot of my my friends I had lost my job I almost lost the roof over my head going through that process when she was in crisis trying to keep her alive she was highly suicidal and required 24-hour um, supervision to wow. make sure that she was safe mm. and 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 that experience um, you know I had heard a lot of judgment from people in my community um, I had a lot of well-meaning people at the time tell me what I should and shouldn't do with my child mm. um, I had a lot of people uh, have great suggestions um, and I had a lot of people blame me and say that my poor life decisions uh, was the reason this was happening or I, I mean and the list goes on and really what I learned from that was that there was huge opportunities uh, for education because a lot of people had a so much um, misconceptions and their own bias and uh, the stigma around mental health was really warping, uh, you know, how they were interacting with me, my children. And this is from, wow. uh, you mm. know, multi-levels within the medical model, within the educational system, right. all of this stuff. And so at that point, I went you know, I, I got to a point, and I think that's the blessing and the curse of the situation where I no longer cared what anybody thought of me. Mm. And <laughs> with that freedom, I went, now let's go ruffle some feathers and talk about mental health. And I'm very fortunate that my daughters are very supportive of this mission. My oldest daughter really doesn't care about anybody else's opinion, which, you know, I think I, as an adult, I kind of a little bit envious of, and my youngest daughter actually was on my season finale this year talking about her suicide attempts. And so uh, we now have become a family that, you know, we'll, we continue in our own mental health journey and mental health struggles, um, depending on their diagnosis and, and how those symptoms are, are popping up. But we also are all on a mission to just debunk stigma and support people talking about a topic no one wants to talk about. Yeah. So that's the that's how being a 
came into fruition. Yeah. And what, when did you build this? When did it start? When did it turn into form? What you know, year was it? How long ago? 2016 is when okay. things really started. And um, okay. as, as I shared my story, um, parents started to come out to me secretly saying, oh, well, my daughter's struggling with this. And what are you doing? And, and I started kind of building this net, this network mm -hmm. uh, and became sought out uh, online. And I started getting involved in activism. And by 2017, I really had hit the ground running, getting um, involved with some organizations like NAMI. And then I created a, um, a holiday giving program uh, in 2017 for children that are in psychiatric crisis. Because one thing that I know for myself to be true, and I see this in other families, is that um, the, the finances are greatly affected. And a lot of these families are struggling to keep a roof over their head. And when I was going through everything within my divorce and the years of poverty after that, from uh, for various different reasons, underemployment, no employment, having to lose employment because of caretaking for my children, um, Christmas was always uh, a nightmare situation and stressful situation for me because I knew mm. I couldn't put anything under the tree. So I started this um, holiday giving program. I called it Project Holiday Hope. Wow. And in 2017, it was its first year, wildly successful. I partner with a community mental health agency here locally in Vancouver, Washington, and we give Christmas to those families. And it's so fulfilling. We did it in 17, we did it in 18, and we're going to be doing it in 19. That's so, incredible. Yeah, it's, you know, we served, the first year we served like a handful of families. Last year, we were able to get out over 500 gifts. We even got a used car to a family who had just become homeless. It was incredible. And That's so, amazing. yeah, so now I'm three years in and, uh, you know, I started the podcast last year. Yeah. So over a year in its inception, um, we're going into season four and that has just been so amazing to be able to bridge the gap between the personal experiences and getting that professional knowledge on top of that so we can really give amazing education to people I and empower them and that yeah. really is what it is is empower the person mm -hmm. uh, no matter where they're at so mm -hmm. It's been, it's been fantastic. It's been lovely. I'm, well, you know what? I have to tell you, first of all, Kimberly, like for me, it's close to my heart. I know we've talked a little bit about this because uh, my brother was diagnosed schizophrenic and I know firsthand what it's like to live with a mental ill person. I grew up in that environment and I'm like, I'm 55. So we're talking, you know, 50 years ago. And there was no conversations around that. There was nothing going on around that. There was nobody who understood anything around it, you know? And I knew, like I knew instant, instantly inside, like at times something was, was wrong. Like I just, I could see my brother, his eyes would just go black. Yes. You know? and, and, and I used to feel like he doesn't mean what he's doing. Like something's really wrong. He's very violent, um, you know, and, and he did, he did drugs at a young age, which totally snapped him into the illness. You know, like you can see from one age 14, 15, I was younger than him. So I was 11 or 12 to like, all of a sudden, like 16, he became Pentecostal. He became extremely religious in addiction. And you could see that he just snapped. He left, he left himself. And I remember being young and just feeling so much compassion for him. And back in the day, I mean, it's really, 
you know, I really admire this because my brother went through a lot and we went through a lot as a family because of it and nobody wanted to do with it. Nobody wanted to address it. No one wants to talk about it. They were giving him major drugs like Haldol and all these kinds of drugs that basically broke him even more. So now in 2019, everything's changed. I know there's a lot more conversations and I find it extremely interesting that what we went through was no conversations like actually like you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest if you got put in the hospital you got electric shock maybe they take give you a lobotomy like it was really bad you know and here we are with you and i'm having we're having this conversation and you're doing things that are you know creating opportunities for people to learn more and understand more but you're still going through certain stigmas and and misunderstandings around what's going on and that you know this is like we're these people are not outcasts you know there's there's a there's a there's something happening here socially there something's going on so yeah. i'm curious about what you think like what's really important for people my audience here to understand around mental illness like what would you suggest where did they start from is it a place of acceptance understanding like talk to me about what you think how can people learn about this well i think one of the 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 challenges with mental illness is um versus anything that falls under what we call a medical illness yeah. is that there is a perception because you can't see it it doesn't exist yeah and so when we see people that are struggling with diabetes and cancer there are very easy diagnostic systems and treatment and it and people tend to treat those a lot more compassionately because they feel like they're real and for some reason we mm -hmm. have disconnected at the neck so everything from the neck up just doesn't seem, you know, we, we don't yeah. think of our brains right. to be a part of our bodies. And the fact that our brains are electrical chemical systems, yeah. they can go offline. So I, I always use epilepsy as an example, because a hundred years ago, epilepsy was looked at as you were possessed by the devil. Yes. <laughs> you were sent away, right? You were sent away, locked away in an institution to yeah. treat this because it was just some religious failing. And now as science has progressed and as we have, have gained more technology, be able to see things in the brain and image the brain and understand these things, we now know that it's an electrical storm in your brain. You take medication, it quiets down the cell excitability and it lets people live normal lives. It has nothing to do with Satan. So, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, if you had somebody who had epilepsy or your know, madness or how, you know, whatever they would use to call that, you know, it was very hushed. Oh, you know, uncle, uncle Johnny, he's, he, he's, you know, he's some kind of special and we, we sent him away. Right. He, you know, he, he gets these shakes. And th there was this hushedness and the shame that came about it with these families. And nowadays we know, okay, you take an anticonvulsant, you, you know, you're, you're getting treatment. Um, we know it's an electrical storm. Um, and if you have epilepsy, now if you were to go up to somebody and say, you know, hi, you know, I'm Kimberly and I have epilepsy, the reaction would be, oh, wow, are you getting treatment? How does that affect your life? Mm -hmm. You know, we would treat those, we would treat uh, that disclosure as something to be um, admired. Yeah. But yet with mental illness, when, when we talk about especially severe mental illness or mm -hmm. what's called SMIs, which are typically mood disorders, so bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, yeah. all that stuff, we, for some reason, don't make the correlation that this is all um, 
this is all brains gone awry. So it's the same thing as epilepsy. It's just affecting different chemicals and different neural pathways and different points in the brain. Yeah. But it's doing a lot of the same thing. That's why we treat mm -hmm. uh, bipolar with anticonvulsants, the same medication as epilepsy, because they are, it, it affects same, similar regions in the brain. Yeah. But again, for some reason, we have had to separate those mm -hmm. and we treat them differently. We have the medical model and then we have the behavioral health model. So we have mm -hmm. two different systems treating these things. Where yeah. really neuroscience and the advancement in neuroscience and mm -hmm. neuropsychology is really teaching us to go from the neck up and look at this from a medical scientific standpoint and understanding the behavioral uh, behaviors or symptoms of how it how it presents mm -hmm. so we have created these as behavioral choices versus an illness that has a symptom and a cause and this disconnection um, creates stigma and misconceptions that can prevent people from getting care that they need. Mm. Um, it stops people from helping um, somebody that they love or being too scared to admit it in themselves because they look at it as a character defect mm -hmm. instead of having something wrong with them. If you broke your bone, you would go to the doctor. Yep. If your brain is breaking, you should go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, you know, and whatever doctor needs to be a part of that team you mm. know that all, that all comes out in the wash but we yeah. need to for understanding that the brain isn't just an online all the time thing and we are all just one electrical misfire from having a very bad day and right. if we treat that with compassion and understanding knowledge education we are empowered to approach that whole system differently. And that's mm -hmm. why it's so important for me to expose, and I work with people, to expose those limiting beliefs. We all, the majority of us, have misconceptions about really what mental illness is and how yes. it impacts us. And totally. especially parents, right? Because yep. the struggle with parents is that we pull from these legacy parenting systems, the way that we were taught to parent our children, these legacy parenting styles, that do not fit in the mental illness, mental health scheme. We have to parent differently. And a lot of the times parents feel like they're, you know, they're butting their heads up against the wall because they can't modify or change the behavior of their children that are in a, a mental health crisis. And when we use these outdated parenting styles, it can exacerbate a situation because our, then as parents, we're, we're putting our expectations and people in re, like adult relationships do this too. This the caregiver, uh, you know, somebody that's dealing with somebody who's, you know, mentally ill, be it a spouse or a parent. We have these stigmas, the, the, these, um, these concepts of, of mental illness, and then we react from those concepts. That's the stigma. So mm. if we're, if we have bought in to, the, to what people say, mental illness is, you know, depression is laziness, or you just have to get over anxiety and just push through it, or, you know, whatever that looks like, right? Yeah. Um, people who have addiction should just be able to get sober like that. Yeah. You know, all of this stuff, if we buy into that, then we're going to be treating and interacting with people uh, who, who are struggling with their mental health um, in a very biased way. 
Absolutely. And we don't help them at all by being that way. Correct. Right? We really don't. Correct. We don't, we don't make them feel what they need to feel, which is understood and accepted. And just like, you know, I think it's so very, very tough. I love what you're saying. I love it all because to me, it means so much because of what I went through uh, personally. And I think people need to understand, like, I, I also, and tell me what you think about this. I believe people are terrified that that could happen to them. And that's why they really want to shove it under the bus because they're just absolutely terrified because the truth is it's an organ. It can do that. It can break. It can misfire. It can electrically stop working correctly. You know, like I, I have, I had hypoglycemia during a time in my life when I was really malnourished and I was going through severe addiction when I was young. I had hypoglycemia, which was, had the exact symptoms of schizophrenia, like literally. When yeah. your brain chemistry stop, stops working correctly, you get yeah. some really crazy things going on in there. And, and I know like, it's like if you meet a person who has diabetes and they're having a severe di diabetic episode, they're hallucinating. They're not there anymore. Like severe things are happening to the brain because the brain eats that sugar. If it doesn't have sugar correctly, it starts breaking down. Yeah. And any condition in the brain is just a brain condition. I love what you're saying. It means like, it makes it so absolutely clear, acceptable, digestible, and it just makes sense. It really makes sense. So that's amazing. Like first try to understand that the brain's absolutely. an organ. You know what I mean? Well, what's, okay. Yeah, exactly. And what's challenging is that, you know, medicine is slow. For, for everything that yeah. it's fast, it's also slow. Yeah. So we have not um, had the technology or the ability to really understand the brain up until recently. So when um, the, the Human Genome Project came out, they were able to then understand more about the epigenetic factors, DNA markers, um, and, and understand some more of the uh, bio, bio factors, biology mm -hmm. type factors Absolutely. of the illnesses. And then with the invention of FMRI, uh, fMRI imaging, we're able to now see the brain. Yes. So we're slowly getting there, but it is a slow process. And part of that is due to funding. You know, there's not a lot of funding for these types of things. It's becoming more prevalent, but, you know, when, at least in the U.S., we're a for-profit medical community here. And if there's no money to be made for it, there's no money to fund it. And, yeah. and that can be really challenging. And so the insurance here are really the gatekeepers into being able to put money into these studies and into this technology that can help. It's getting better, but we still have a very long way to go. Oh. We now understand a lot more than we did even 10 years yes. because of the human genome project. But mm -hmm. yet we still have so much farther to go um, to understand, you know, uh, markers, you know, and understand how medications react. And, and, you know, I was actually yesterday, I was talking to, um, a, a researcher from the University of Michigan. She's a, at the a Bipolar uh, Research Institute. And for me, as a parent, I, you know, I of somebody who, of a child who has bipolar, it was like, it would just be so nice to be able to get a test, do a blood test, know exactly what we're dealing with and what medications right. help. Wouldn't that be lovely, yeah. right? But it's not so simple. Yeah. And so, you know, they're doing some amazing research around this now, but it's still going to take time. And, and that's yeah. the hard part is that it's patience. And a lot of this at this point is really trial and error. And people don't like that. You know, it, it, it requires so much patience. And part of the problem or some of the challenges around this too is when you have a medical disease, you're treated in a hospital and then you come home. 
when you have mental health issues, behavioral health issues, unfortunately, a lot of the treatment falls upon the caregivers. So be it the parent or the spouse or whatnot, because all of that treatment is being done in the home environment. And that's incredibly exhausting, especially for that caregiver who just wants to quote unquote, get back to normal. And that's really, you know, part of the the struggle for these communities. And and it can be so isolating because of the stigma piece. I know for myself, it was, I lost a lot of friends. People just Mm. didn't understand. And that happens very frequently. So it's a very isolating, it's very stressful um, all of these different factors because we just don't, we, we, we don't just put these people away anymore. Right. No, and and there's, also, yeah, cons for, to that, yeah, you know, yeah, there's, sure. there's so many challenges with this, but yet yeah. there are breakthroughs coming down the pike and we are finding new treatment options and we are modifying some stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and it's evolving and it's evolution as we further understand the brain, then we can help treat the brain. Yeah. So, you know, like a couple of things from just to take some stuff away from what you're talking about here. And I had a memory of my brother and at one point they found the cocktail that would work for him. Okay. I mean, this is like 30 year old, this is a 30 year story of my brother and my father was still alive at the time and he was living with my brother. Now my brother's in a group home. He's too dysfunctional to live with anybody. So they, they have to manage him because he, he really went, he's been far gone now. Um, unfortunately. Okay. But at one point they found a cocktail that really stabilized his mind. And he went, I want to tell you what happened to me. It's like, it was crazy. He couldn't cope with the reality of his brain stabilizing because he remembered everything that he did. He remembered the things he did with me violently. He remembered the episode and he had, they had no treatment to help him deal with the fact that he was stabilizing, but he had been sick for so long and had done so many things that were dysfunctional or violent because of his condition that there wasn't like a, like a, a brain hospital for him to go to, to have all, all the things he needed emotionally, mentally, um, in his memories, in his trauma that was coming up because of it. He just couldn't get that help. So my brother started drinking alcohol to just yeah. threw up his cocktail that was working for him. He couldn't cope with it. It was so sad for me. Like Kimberly, I was like, this is, I think that's what's needed is a brain hospital. Just same thing where there's all these people working with this condition, helping like a rehabilitation experience. So we understand, we diagnose, we give treatment, we find, find a way, a platform to help people go to the next stages of their possibilities, depending how, how they heal. Don't, like, I mean, it's like, it's heartbreaking for me. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. And so many other families that have experienced similar things to that. And we okay. see a lot of addiction, especially in mood disorders. There's yeah. a high level of co-occurrence. Yeah. Uh, and then unfortunately, the, especially alcohol um, can actually uh, exacerbate psychotic conditions, right? Totally. So yeah. They start doing it to numb out. Um, and then it, it ends up being quite problematic. THC, actually, they're doing a lot more studies in THC because of the paranoia factor. A lot of people self-medicate smoking marijuana. And now okay. the studies are coming out showing some of, not CBD, but some of the um, psychotic features of prolonged use over time of THC. So it, it's... it's Makes sense. It's really, really, yeah. It's really, it's, it's yeah. so difficult because I know even in my own personal experience, when my daughter comes out, um, off of an episode and she sees the damage that yeah. has been done. Um, she's so remorseful. And then the guilt and shame cycle kicks right. in. 
Yeah. And, you, and it's, yeah. it's a heartbreaking to watch because you know, and you said it earlier, um, the, the eyes go black. There is, you yeah. can literally see the moment they, their brain goes completely offline. It is yep. visible and it is, it is frightening. And, and part of the violence and the frightening is a part of severe mental illness. And I'm saying severe mm. mental illness because mental health is a spectrum. Yeah. We have general mental health, anxiety, depression, you know, unipolar depression, things of that nature um, that are a, a more manageable. Mm -hmm. And then we have mental illness and that's mm -hmm. when we start looking at mood disorders and um, anything that's neurodevelopmental. So ADHD, we know that there's neurodevelopment issues with ADHD. It's not yeah. just behavioral issue that, you know, bipolar, the severity and the spectrum of bipolar, schizophrenia, psycho I mean, and then we start going and if we talk about the whole neuro, you know, the neurodiversity spectrum, then we start moving into like anti, anti-social psychotic, um, psychopathic behavior that's all part and partial and we can look at that whole spectrum and look at places now in the brain where we see them see those specific places go offline for all of those different diagnoses wow. so you know it is it is a shame a lot in a lot there is i think what gets amplified in the media is some of the more scary experiences that we have encountered with mental illness and i don't want to take that off the table that that is a reality because yeah. it is many people yeah. have experienced that yeah. um, but on a whole um, when we look at the numbers and the stats we know that even the even the sickest population is more predisposition to actually be abused than to be the abuser mm -hmm. because what happen is they will be put in some of these really um, sketchy situations either they become homeless which you know, ninety percent yeah. of the homeless population has, um, you know, severe mental illness yeah. or mental illness, uh, or they go into these sketchy group home, the like you know, residential situations where yeah. they're being, um, where they're being abused, and um, and 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 that's really sad as well. Um, so there's no, you know, it's not that there isn't help. Um, and we are getting better, but again, it's just a slow roll. Yeah. So the only thing that we can do, um, to help contribute to the overall change mm -hmm. in the world is to number one, change our viewpoint and understand where we may be wrong and how we perceive mental health. I love it. Yeah. And it, yeah, especially when we start looking at, at, at parents and because I work with parents, I see this a lot. They don't want to admit their child is going through a, a mental health issue because they feel like it's a reflection of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they feel they would have to admit that they're a bad, quote unquote, bad parent if their child was depressed. And so for that's a huge sticking point because the parent is the gatekeeper to care. That child cannot go get mental health care if the parents aren't on board. So if they don't want to admit that their child is depressed or, or, or anxious and get them help, that child's systems are going to exacerbate over time. And that's what we do know is that things don't get better unless there's intervention. And the earlier you have intervention, the better. Because we see what is reported in terms of like yesterday we were talking about bipolar and they said that the me the median onset age of bipolar is 25 that's only because that's being what's reported that's at right that age that's but right when those people look back they see that they exhibited symptoms of bipolar into Way their before. childhood yeah yeah my brother was like that I, I i remember and i remember when my parents finally like i told i i remember sitting with them i mean 
I'm also who I am. So I could feel it. Uh, intuitively, I knew. I'm like, my brother's sick. And no one would listen. They just didn't believe it. And, I'm, I, and I remember sitting with my parents and, and, I, and you know, they did all this stuff with them. Like, I said, he's sick. Like something's wrong with him. He leaves. I see him. His eye, he leaves. He disappears. The brother I know when he was stable wouldn't be there anymore. You know, so one of the things I've learned, like for me, I have a deep acceptance of it. Like that's, you know, knowing my experience, you know, um, tough experience because, you know, I had to recover from the violence and the fear that I, I experienced as a person receiving that from a schizophrenic person. Um, I know the trauma I experienced from dealing with that every day. And I know you're talking about that too. I mean, you're watching people you love and there's a variety of it. And, you know, I mean, there's families right now that are sitting that are going to listen to this, parents who, who may have judgment. Tell me about what you would say to them. Like, where do they start? Just like, here's where you start. This is what you can do as a parent right away if you see an instability in your child. Exactly. Well, here in the, in the United States, what yeah. I tell parents when they say, I think something's wrong. Yeah. You know, when they get to a point where like something's not right, when you listen to your gut, your truth is always within you, regardless yep. if you want to argue with it. Mm -hmm. The reality is always the reality. So I would say tune in, listen, you know, just take take your own judgment and and perception out of it and say, Do I think something could be off here? That's yeah. you know, start off with that question. Is something not just right? Yeah. And if you say yes to that, and if you can't start to dispute it or you have to argue with yourself to get to that no answer then the first stop is to, to go to your primary care physician or your doctor. Um, depending on, and this is where it gets a little hectic here, depending on your insurance, that really starts to dictate which path you're going to go down. Yeah. So, you know, take going to the doctor, getting that documentation, saying, look, this is what I'm seeing, These, and start to track and trend what you're seeing. Start to, you know, look at mood. You know, are they happy? Are they sad? Are they withdrawing? Are they irritable? Are they angry? Like start to look at their moods. Are they slowly losing interest in activities that they no longer enjoy or they used to enjoy and they no longer mm -hmm. enjoy? You know, see, look for some of those flags and then start to look at, well, how much are they eating and how much are they sleeping? Sleep has a huge impact. Yeah. So start tracking those things. And what I did back in the day is I just had a calendar and I would write a smiley face, a sad face or a neutral face. And I would put how many hours of sleep my child was having. And it just was that simple for a while. That's and I, would, I started to see trends, less sleep, worse mood. Okay. So then you're starting to what I call data gather. You're starting to gather the data that you're going to bring to the doctor and say, look, I, over the last couple of weeks, I've seen these persistent symptoms. You know, she, you know, my daughter's doing X, Y, Z, or my son is doing X, Y, Z. He's snapping at me. He's irritable. I have uncontrollable crying. All of a sudden they're scared to leave the house. Um, all of a sudden they, they feel like something bad's going to happen to them with no real justification for that. All these different little things, gather that information, have it track it in one place take it to the doctor and say, this is, this is what I'm thinking is going mm -hmm. on or I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. The doctor's going to take a look at that data, ask some questions, and then probably refer you out or make a recommendation to see a therapist. And if it's severe enough, they'll also probably make a recommendation to see a psychiatrist yeah. if medication is needed. Yeah. So it just depends. So that tracking okay. as a parent, you have that first line of being able to really see, but that has to come with 
um, awareness and not judgment, just acceptance, like you said earlier, of what the situation really is. Yeah. And then from there, those paths then divide and, um, and hopefully you, your child ends up getting treatment. Absolutely. See, so the thing I, you know, what I'm hearing is you're saying, make it about observing more than anything else. Like really pay attention to your child, trust your gut, follow, follow signs, uh, look for evidence, just relax. Don't take it personal. I mean, this is your baby. You know, if you're, you know, it's like you, you just want to show up in that way just in case, because it's really important. Um, and also you do this kind of work. You do this coaching work with parents and people as well. So they can contact you as well, which is like, I think that could be something extremely important for people to understand just to understand the details. I mean, having support by somebody who's been through it, who knows a lot of it. You have a ton of information that you're, like, you're just like a powerhouse of knowledge here for, you know, something that's really misunderstood, which I, I really, really appreciate. I really do. I wish I met you when we were going through it as a family, because it was quite, it was quite something, you know, my parents, both of them, you know, the, the most, the most painful thing for me that I watched was my, my brother was sick. And my father, he ended up moving away and being in a really weird situation with this woman who was sick also. And my father just threw money at it. He didn't know how to handle it. He couldn't accept it. So he threw money at it and let them deal at the other side of the world out west. You know, I'm on the East Coast, on the West Coast. And then, you know, 20 years later, my brother came back he, and he had to deal with him anyways. And I remember telling my dad, it's like, wouldn't it have been better just to understand what was going on with him and try to know? Because if you give a mentally ill person money and more money, they're just going to do really things that are going to harm them. Like my brother drank and he got into drugs and, you know, it's like, he's so, just so afraid to deal with reality that my father just threw money at it. And it didn't help my mother too. She just ignored it. Like, she, and I don't think they really wanted to. I just think they were so afraid and uneducated. Yeah. You so, don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot, a lot of people do the best that they can, can do. Yeah. But that's exactly why I wanted to start the podcast with, give a, you know, a free resource for people to start to it. understand. Because there's so I, I touch on so many different topics, yeah. and I wanted people to understand some of the truth, and then also find those resources. So there's a lot of great information out there. There's great organizations like NAMI um, that you know know the mental health world kind of in and out, politically all the way down the structures. Mm -hmm. all the way down. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a ton of misinformation out there too. Oh yeah, and so, especially on you know all these private Facebook groups and things of that nature, um, you have to I just say use a high level of discernment to see what's going to work and what's going to not. They can they can get very volatile in those groups. Right. That was disheartening for me to go in there. I wanted to be supported, but I also wanted practical tips and strategies. Yeah. To, be able to move forward because nothing changes unless something changes, and if you're you know, if you're kind of navigating a new world and new systems and different ways of interacting and, and building new concepts around those, none of that um, is going to happen if you stay in the old information and if you continue to believe and buy into the stigma of it all. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of that, it can be very isolating. It's very hard on, on the caregiver. It's very isolating for the caregiver. Um, and it doesn't 
it doesn't have to be if you can tap into the resources that are there yeah. and be able to utilize those and, and learn your new normal. And that's how being though, even the title of being a normal, you know, yeah. I, when we were going through crisis, I kept waiting to go back to normal. When is my child going to get normal again? When are we going back to normal? And then I really had the deep realization is this is my new normal and all caregiver, all people struggling with mental illness hit a point where they're going to have to accept that they mm -hmm. have a new normal an unnormal and that's okay and we can celebrate neurodiversity and we can celebrate Absolutely. not being normal and embrace accept it and be empowered by it Move yeah forward. that's beautiful and i love i mean i really feel just thrilled about this conversation honestly because i know there's lots of parents out there you know i have like i have you know personal feelings about what's going on and you know a lot of ideas and you know i've tapped into lots of information personally about like you know why are kids, why are children growing up so much more with so many more mental kind of conditions they're dealing with? Why is every kid ADHD now? Like, I mean, it's an epidemic here in, in Canada, in Montreal in particular. Like I have every second parents telling me my kids on pills, my kids. And I'm like, I just have a hard time believing that every person is that unstable. I think like there's a lot of things going on that we need to understand, like food, like, like, um, you know, things like, uh, uh, sweeteners, sugar, what, what are we eating? How are we like digesting and what are we putting in our brains and our minds? Are we getting enough? Like there's so much, the internet, like the speed with which kids are, their brain can't keep up with what they're visually seeing. I think there's so many factors, you know? It's, it, it's, it's multifactorial. I mean, and that's, and that's the, the broad answer is that there are many different factors that are coming to play into this. One of those factors is that the, these, these, um, these mental health issues have always existed. Mm -hmm. we, have, we may have not saw them for what they were. Yeah. So although we have some abnormally high, um, some, some over-diagnosing in, in certain areas, we still okay. have under-diagnosing in some of those areas. Okay. And I, it's so individual. There are many factors. Are we know that there's a connection with our, our gut biome and the manufacture of serotonin and dopamine. Ninety percent yep. of serotonin is manufactured in the gut. Yeah. So if we have a poor diet, that's going to inhibit our ability to manufacture serotonin, which is going to lead us to you know higher rates of depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So there 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 is that. There are these uh, social economic factors of. Um, the, you know, when we, we think about poverty and what is happening to the, you know, here in the middle class and the stress of not being able to afford anything, people are losing their homes and not being yeah. able to feed themselves. We know that that trauma embeds into the DNA and then is passed down intergenerationally. Mm. And so they've done tons of studies to show that we now have more occurrence of, of violence. Yeah that we are being exposed to on a daily basis. And like you said, we're getting constantly bombarded, yeah. but that is retraining our neural pathways, it right? So that, that, that it does something. So there are all these different factors that come into play. And, you know, with my youngest daughter, we went to, um, we went to a neuroscience lab and she had to go through a six hour evaluation. They did cognitive testing, emotional testing, all these different tests to get to, to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, sometimes when we see possible overdiagnosis is because they may not be in the right specialist or their, their primary care physician is just kind of labeled this just because of the symptoms that are reported and it still can be very subjective. Yeah. Um, you know, my youngest daughter does have ADHD. Yeah. And 
um, for her, Ritalin is a lifesaver. Yeah, I, I can't. I actually got a message from her teacher today going, I had to go talk to Ella today because she was, you know, a little fidgety and, and be and, and she told me she accidentally forgot her meds today. I mean, it is that right. obvious yeah. for us. For absolutely. When the condition's there, of course. Yeah. And so yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. some, some parents with children with AD, you know, a very mild form of ADHD don't yeah. have to medicate. They were, they're able to change the diet and the food and that's, and that works too. So yeah. it, you know, it, and so that's when it becomes, okay, the diagnosis itself is yep. a framework, but yes. we manage the symptoms that are impacting function. Yep. And that's the, the, the component that a lot of people forget. How is that diagnosed? How is their behavior impacting the function of their life? And how are we going to address mm -hmm. the symptoms of that mm -hmm. behavior, the causes of those behaviors, so we can change the quality of life? Mm -hmm. And that really has to be the focus, right? It's not, I want Johnny to stop jumping off the couch. Absolutely. It is, why, why is Johnny <laughs> jumping on the couch? Yes, right? yes. What's, what's happening here? What is the underlying issue or the, what I like to talk about a lot is the unmet need of the child. The behavior is I a simple it. unmet need. Yeah. And, and that's true of most people. We all yeah. have unmet needs and our behavior is symptomatic of those unmet needs. So um, in, in terms of mental illness, you know, really not getting too hung up on, does it have to be meds or food or why is this happening or anything? It just is. At any time function is impacted, there needs to be an intervention. I love and it. Whatever that intervention is, yoga, meditation, mm -hmm. diet, exercise, mm -hmm. it's all great. Do yeah. it all. Find yeah. what works for you because it's very individual. Everybody's brain is different. Yeah. I know for, for me, medication is a huge part of our life and it yeah. happens to be very impactful. My daughter has bipolar and we know mm. in that type of illness, it does need to be managed with medications. Um, just because Absolutely. of the, the way that the brain is designed. Yeah. But that's not necessarily true for somebody who may be just struggling with unipolar depression. Yeah. Is able to make some lifestyle changes and get some therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, whatever that looks like for them, mm -hmm. and able to retrain their brain to think differently and alleviate yeah. that depression. I love or, it. Yeah, manage anxiety. So amazing. No, yeah. honestly, so important and incredible information. That's what I was saying. Like, there's such an there's such an epidemic, and there's so much reality in the epidemic. You know what I mean? It's totally like completely. I've had this experience with my own like my own brother. Difference from one with without pills, with without alcohol. I also had a friend at one point too that was like. She, they changed her medication. She was bipolar, diagnosed bipolar. They changed her medication. She called, she 911 me. I found her on the floor in a fetal position. Just from the change, her body was like, that's not going to work. And the, I mean, I mean, she, I was like, wow. And I just stayed with Whoa. her. And her down. No, I did. I mean, I walked in her house and I just sat with her on the floor because I was able to accept her condition without judgment or fear. I, you know, and I think this is really important for people to understand. You don't have to be afraid. You can just, you're just trying, but just her, like as an example, because I was there and I could just talk her down off that, that ledge, she was able to calm down because the mind started going wherever it was going. And then we went and saw the doctor and she got herself all, you know, corrected. Sorted out. Yeah. I, and I think you just, you just touched upon a really important point that I, I'm, it jogged something that I, I, I did want to touch upon Absolutely. And suicide and suicidality. Yeah. And I really want your audience to understand by 
talking about suicide does not mean it's going to introduce the thought or make somebody mm -hmm. suicidal. We know that that's not true. No, In fact, sure. the opposite is true. It actually alleviates the stress off of the person that may be feeling suicidal Absolutely. and it opens the door to conversation. And it can be a very, very awkward, uncomfortable situation, but it's so important for people to understand that it's a direct question. It's not, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Do you feel suicidal? Do you want to die? Do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. asking the direct questions and then if you get a yes on those to sit with them like you did for your friends sit with them and be oh, with yeah. them so you can get help find an emergency room call your doctor call yep. the therapist call the psychiatrist whatever that team looks like but please do not buy into one of the biggest myths that you've been told talking about suicide does not make anybody suicidal they've already entertained the thought of course of course, hundred so percent. That's a brilliant point. So throw important. that gauntlet down. <laughs> no, but that's a brilliant and important point. You know what happened with my my girlfriend in that moment? I just didn't leave her side. Like I think that was very significant for me, and and my brother too. Like there were times I just you just sometimes you just have to your acceptance is a feeling that you transmit to another person, which allows them to relax. Because the minute like she went into like something's wrong, something's wrong. And I, you know, she had to deal with that thought. Yeah. So absolutely. I was able to help her go, this is exactly what's wrong. You changed your meds. We're going to go to the doctor immediately tomorrow morning. I'm going to stay here all night with you. You know, like, boom, calm down. Calm. So the minute she, her brain heard me, she was able to shift. She didn't yes. feel better, but she was able to just stay with me more calmly and know that I understood what was happening. So it was okay. Not you held that space yeah. for her. And that's something that a lot of parents, because they're bringing their own baggage into that escalation, they yeah. inter, you know, just kind of intermittently make it worse they because do. they come with fear yes. and we respond to each other's energy. So, I mean, at number one, I applaud you for, you know, Thank holding you. that space for your friend. It was, it was probably a life-saving maneuver and you know, it's, and it's very difficult, but it's absolutely doable if we come into those spaces with compassion and understanding yep. versus fear or blame or judgment, the outcome is different. Mm -hmm. The outcome is you're saving this person's life. And this is, you know, that's what it really comes down to. Yeah. I remember my daughter told me, um, we had conversations when she stabilized about her suicidality and she, and she said, mom, do you know why I didn't kill myself? And I said, no, you know, why didn't, why didn't you attempt to kill yourself? And she said, because I knew it would break your heart. And Ugh. the one thing I knew through all of this is how much I loved you. You know, and that's huge. And it was, that's huge. It was enough to keep her alive. And you know what? I'll huge. take it. I'll take it. I totally, a safe love, place to fall, <laughs> right? That's like so important, like such a valuable statement to make, like your love, your acceptance that you shared gave her that consciousness that her brain couldn't get without that feeling. You know, it's so important. Like I think this, it, like this subject for me, cause I know so many parents going through challenges and there, I mean, this, it's just, you know, it's a really hard time uh, because of a lot of reasons, as you know. So the work that you're doing means so much to me. And I know it means so much to, it will mean a lot of, uh, a lot to other people that are going to listen to this show. Um, I want to know a couple of other things. Okay. Cause I think what you're doing is brilliant and I want people to be able to reach out to you. So the podcast is called being unnormal. It's being yes. a normal podcast. Where can they find it? 
So you can find it directly on our website, www.beingunnormal.com, and that's going to be two N's, unnormal. Yep. Um, we're also on all major uh, like podcast players, so yep. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, um, all of those, you know, podcast players, you can find us just, you know, bring up being a normal. The easiest way is just to go to our website. We have all of our episodes, um, on, on online on our website and they're all free and available. So Amazing. depending on what you use to listen to your music, you can also mm -hmm. listen to the podcast. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so you can find us anywhere just being And tell me about how people can work with you. I so want them people to know how to work with you. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's two ways. Either you can get in touch with me directly by emailing me at beingunormal at gmail.com yep. or go online to my website. I have information about our boot camp um, and there is a button there you can click and you can just book a call with me, get on my schedule, and then we can have a conversation and make sure that you know, it's, it's an appropriate uh, time and place to be able to work with a coach versus maybe a mental health professional and yeah. do that assessment. And we'll talk it out and make sure that you're a right fit to work with me. And then we start on your journey mm -hmm. and it's such a rewarding journey. It's mm -hmm. amazing. It's such a well, blessing to work right? with everybody. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, you must, you know, I, cause there's two things I know about you. One of them is your pack with experience. And second of all, you're honest. You're not going to like lead somebody down a road that they don't belong on. You know, that's very clear from sharing with you and knowing you, um, that you wouldn't do that. It's really important that they, people get the help they need because this is a, a very serious issue for, for families. Absolutely. And I've been very lucky that I've built a referral network. So if somebody is in meeting of a therapist, I'm going to refer them out, especially locally. I do Amazing. a lot of work with a lot of therapists here and we work in conjunction with each other. We refer each other um, because there are appropriate times and places. And like you said, yeah, there's an ethical responsibility to know yeah. where that boundary lies. I love it. I really love it. And I love it that you're, you're, you're moving towards the front lines and helping just regular folk understand what's going on and that they're not alone. A big, big part of that is the, you know, people feel alone. They don't know how to just feel comfortable with their circumstances. You know, it's so interesting because a parent wouldn't have a problem if their child was diabetic, but a parent may feel so uncomfortable about mental illness issue because they, they don't know what to do. And there's not enough information and acceptance. And, you know, I, I, I have a, two other things that are really important to me that I want your advice on for the audience themselves. First is if the doctor just throws pills at your child and you know, a, a parent will be like, okay, we'll just administer these pills. But you, yeah. you know, sometimes I guess it might happen that the, the, you know, they just saying here, take this and it doesn't work or nothing changes. Do you, what would you advise parents to like, what's the checkup point? Like doctor, is it doctor, therapist, psychologist? Like what's their, what's the best protocol for someone to follow? So, um, it, you know, it, it, it is situational depending on okay. the severity level, yep. but always medication should never be the first line of defense. In my opinion, mm -hmm. if you go see your doctor and, um, uh, you know, the first thing that's being presented to you is medication, I would say yep. be very cautious and leery. I, you know, one of the things about being a parent of a child with emotional special needs is that you learn to advocate. You have to be an advocate and you will be pushing back on different systems, the medical system, the educational system, the criminal justice system. So all these start to come into play. And so be, be weary. Um, typically, typically um, 
because of insurance, you need that PCP referral to go see a therapist. And that's kind of why that's that first line of defense. I always think therapeutical intervention is the first stop. Finding okay. a therapist and not a, you know, you may go and meet a few therapists before you find one you connect with. And that's okay too. Not yeah. everybody, not, important. not everybody's for everybody. That's but right. you know, you're going to want to look at the type of therapy and the experience that therapist has. Do they specialize in depression? Do they, you know, do they specialize in OCD? Do they specialize, you know, where, mm -hmm. what, what do they do? Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, make that appointment with the therapist and then working in conjunction with your therapist to see if medication would be appropriate. Okay. And, you know, therapists typically have a good ear to the ground on that. And if mm -hmm. they is coming in with psychotic depression, they're going to see that fairly quickly. And then they'll be able to assess and say, you know, pull, a, you know, the care, you know, somebody in on the team, if that's appropriate and there's releases, blah, 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 okay. you know, yeah. to say, Hey, I think, you know, Johnny may need to go to the doctor and get something, or we need to get a psychiatrist involved. And here's my referrals. Here's mm -hmm. what I and ask your therapist for recommendations. And then you can find a psychiatrist to do the medication management piece. Perfect. So yeah, that's, very important. That's, that's typically how I would navigate that. Mm -hmm. And do you recommend also that parents find groups or do you have like, um, like obviously to me, just the podcast alone, like go listen. Cause there's, you know, just going to be a ton of information you're offering even here. Like, I mean, just this, this small, uh, show here is like just packed with information from you. Um, so that's really important. Get support. Parents need to get support. People need to get support. Yes. Um, you know, make sure that they, they, they move towards allowing themselves to deal and find out and discover the experience of the truth. Like what is really going on here and give yeah. them a chance to do it patiently and lovingly. Like, cause I think part of, you know, like my parents were distraught. They didn't know what to do. Right. Yeah. They never helped themselves over it. They just suffered over it. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, that, yeah, and I, I think that groups are important, but I will go back to kind of the beware, yeah. the same thing with the internet, look for a group that has structure and maybe affiliated okay. with a bigger organization. So NAMI does free support groups. They're a great Perfect. organization. Okay. Um, so go, you know, you can check out their website. It's N is in Nancy, A, M is in Mary, I.org, NAMI.org. And they have lots of, of free support groups. Um, the, Part of the problem is people can do support groups, but they end up being a bitch session, to be quite yes, honest. Yes, I've seen that. What you yeah. need is structure in those meetings because you need to go and be able to um, find solace in, in community, but also you need to start um, using them as you know self-care and self-recovery in these situations. There are mm -hmm. there, and can be a lot of trauma that attaches in these situations. Mm -hmm. So you know making sure that you're taking care of yourself and utilizing appropriate resources. Mm -hmm. And for you as a parent, and I mean I know I mean we didn't even really get into your life experience, which I know a little bit about uh, you know, I couldn't be prouder of you as a human being. Like, it's just unbelievable. Like you're like a walking miracle as far as I'm concerned and your children too, that they have you. And they had, they had someone who fought for themselves, which, which gave them, you know, the courage to fight for themselves too, you know, so important. Your greatest learning from all of these experiences has been what, what have you understood or what has been the like, as powerful gift in it yeah yeah um the biggest lesson is it's not about me i love it 
Yeah. It has I nothing know. to do with me. Yeah. And when I take myself out of the equation, my hurt, my trauma, my ego, my bullshit, yep. and it becomes about my child. And that's where it should be about. Yeah, their, their, their symptom management, their recovery, their stability. Right. And isn't that why you're all here now? You know, Absolutely. because without you as that role model, I don't think the kids would be here now. Well, I've been very fortunate enough to have some amazing people in my life that helped guide me through this process yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but I know that that is hard found. And so I, mm -hmm. that was my note to myself. If I get through this, I will right. be the child I want to see and I can be that for somebody else. And now I am. Look at, look at that. And tell me about this uh, Adolescent Mental Health Summit. What, can we tell everybody about that? What is that? So uh, last year, um, in conjunction with the Camus Wellness Festival, um, I produced and, and put on the Adolescent Mental Health Summit. So we ran um, speakers uh, all day long in two different rooms talking about various mental health issues. We had uh, a panel discussion on suicide. We had a panel discussion on just teen life, addressing things like social Amazing. media and things like that. Yeah, so I was on the panel. I, you know, I ran a panel and then I ran the the um, event. So it was very impactful. We had 300 people come in and out, um, which was amazing. And now I got to start to gear up and do it again. But this year, I want to actually uh, make it a mental health summit and and in one space run it for adolescents, and the other space run it more adult. Phenomenal. And where is this going to be and when? This, uh, the when is TBD. It probably, I'm okay. shooting for the beginning of November. We had it towards okay. the end of October last okay. year. And this happens in Camas, Washington, which Perfect. is the Portland metro area. So okay. it's just right over the river in Vancouver, Camas, Washington. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to um, do that education piece that is a huge part of my mission. This is incredible. And we'll have all the links. So you guys, you'll all, you'll all be able to find what Kimberly's up to and all these incredible experiences. The gift that you've given me today is just, you know, um, really being able to talk about something that has been a painful part of my journey and making it like turning it right into solution making and helping people to me that's like critical and I know there's a lot of people who feel very alone with this subject and really don't even realize that maybe there is a mental health issue going on with their child or with themselves or with somebody in their family and they they might not know what to do I mean I've bumped into so many people like that so the fact that we're here and we're doing this means a lot. And I know my audience will be really happy to hear what you have to say and, you know, pass it on. If you know somebody, please pass it on and just, just know that it's okay to talk about, you know, like it's okay to share the wisdom of this experience here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting me come and talk with you today. Sure. Such a pleasure. Um, and hopefully this will, like you said, be the impetus for somebody to say it's time. It's time. I'm sure I'm sure it will. I really am. I'm sure it will. And and either way, you're touching so many people. I'm extremely proud of the work you're doing. It takes real courage to be able to stand up and say, hey, people, you know, and you're gonna be a huge change maker in this industry for sure. You know, thank you so much. I honor you so much. Mm -hmm. So my pleasure. blessing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope all of you have enjoyed this show and feel free to comment, reach out to Kimberly, let her know what you heard her on on the show today and uh we'll see you on next time yes thank you take care everybody you're so welcome